Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. Have that uh, there. Let's back it up just a little bit. Verse 16 says, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. That's key. That's the first step. To know and believe the love that God has for us, that he loves us. And after that, we must understand that God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And so we believe the love God has for us. And then we step into God or into love. And we become a a, a conduit of love. So honestly, for, for many of you, I mean, the altar call is like right now. Like go and love somebody. Today, go and show love. Go and let love flow through you because when it flows through you, that's when the electricity of God's love can flow to you. And so many of us are are lacking power primarily in in our Christian life because we're lacking love. So you're never going to get the power to overcome sin if you don't operate in love. You're never going to get the power to do what you know you should do if you're not operating in love. When you're not operating in love, you are zapping yourself of all of God's power to do everything else he's commanded you to do. And so the first step is to receive the love of God and then to begin to transfer that love. And, 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 and now John is talking about something different. In verse 17, he's developing this idea and he says, when we've done that, when we've stepped into the love of God, when we are living in love, this is what happens. Love has been perfected among us. And this is the goal. John keeps talking about this. He mentioned this in chapter two, I think it was, where he said that that this is the goal, that love would be perfected in our hearts. Now that word perfected is a little tricky because in the English, we think of perfected as something which was flawed. We worked on it a little bit and it became perfected, right? Um, But technically in the Greek, the word perfected doesn't mean to take something that's flawed and make it better. It means to take something and make it complete, Right, So like on the cross, Jesus is hanging on the cross and the gospel said that he said, I thirst. Remember that? He's hanging on the cross. He said, I thirst. And scripture tells us that he said, I thirst, not because he was actually thirsty, but in order to fulfill the prophecy, in order to fulfill the word of God. In other words, there are some prophecies, some things that God has spoken, some things he's said that haven't yet come to pass. And Jesus fulfilled those things. Jesus made them come to pass. And that word fulfilled is the same word as perfected here. Basically, the prophecy that God had said about his son being thirsty on the cross was perfected when Jesus said, I thirst. And they brought him, not water, but they brought him gall mixed with vinegar on one of those sticks that they would use to wipe their rear ends with. So it's kind of a nasty picture. But, but the purpose of it, though, is to fulfill the prophecies that was said about the Messiah. This is what would happen. And, and, and if you want to know where the prophecy is, it's in Psalm 22. It said, my, roof, the, 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 my tongue clings to the roof of my mouth. In other words, I'm thirsty. And in, in that entire psalm, it's a picture of the crucifixion. And Jesus is fulfilling Every single uh, prophecy about, about the Messiah. And to the Jewish mind, that's very significant. Uh, to, especially to the Jews who were standing there, visual, visually seeing what's happening. And that's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not because God had forsaken him. Because the Father cannot, the triangle can't be broken. So the triangle is always connected. He said that because that's the beginning line of Psalm 22. And, and if you read the rest of Psalm 22, you see that his hands and feet were pierced and they divided, they ripped off his clothes and divided, cast lots to divide them. And so, so many things Jesus is doing to fulfill or to complete the circle, to perfect the prophecy. And so when it says that the love of God has been perfected in our heart, it doesn't mean that you won't make any mistakes anymore. It doesn't mean that you will live this life like a robot and you will always do and say and think the right things. It is to say, though, that the love that God sent to you has found its purpose in you, and it is now doing inside of you what he had intended it to do. It's completed the circle. It's completed the circuit. It's gone to you, and it's also gone through you. And when it's gone through you, the love of God has been perfected in you, and which, by the way, will lead to moral purity, which will lead to thinking correctly and acting correctly. I mean, if you lived in love, 
If everything you said was, was, was tainted with the color of love. I was, I was in the Christian bookstore the other day because we, we got a little Bible for Zion, which I, I, I'll give you guys after service, but it's a little kid's Bible. And it's great for you guys to read. And, um, you know, down in San Marcos, so there's the outlet there. And so I'm standing in line and there's this lady in front of me and um, she's buying these Christian t-shirts and um, t-shirts. They got like crosses and stuff on them. And, and uh, she was like with a couple of these kids. I think they were like her, her relatives, maybe her nieces or something. And there's these, these two girls and, and uh, she was buying like another cross to hang on the wall. And she's like, you have like a million crosses in your home. And she's like, I got more crosses than you even know that I have. And I'm like, where are you? Are we talking tattoos now? Is this appropriate for the Christian store? I don't know. But she's, but it was interesting because you can, and it's just, it was such a reminder to me that you can have a house full of crosses and a mouth that's lacking love. And it, all your crosses don't matter. All your Christian t-shirts and bumper stickers don't matter. This is, not what, this is not what causes the love of God to flow through you. But what comes out of you, that's the love of God or not the love of God. And so when love has been perfected in your heart, love will come out of your mouth. When love has been perfected in your heart, kindness will come out of your hands. Kindness will come out of your life selflessness will be natural to you when love is perfected in your heart because the love that you receive from God is incredibly selfless. He's not seeking his own benefit when he loves us. He's seeking our good. And so the kind of love that we're talking about here is the kind of love that seeks the highest good of another. And this is what the father is always doing for the son. And this is what the Son is always doing for the Spirit. And this is what the Spirit is always doing for the Son. This is what the Son is always doing for the Father. And this is what the Father is always doing for the Spirit. And it just moves like this. There's this flow. And when, when you become a Christian, you step into the love of God. You become a benefactor of the love of God. But not only a benefactor, you become a channel of the love of God as well. So this is not just about receiving. This is not just about believing. This is also about transmitting to others, to those around us, this love. Which, by the way, happens not from your own uh, intuition or your own strength. So the goal of today is not it's like, okay, darn it, I know I need to stop being so mean to my kids. Like, I, I'm going I'm to try to stop that. All right, this week, I'm not going to yell at them, all right? Just so help me God, I'm not going to yell. Well, you know, that's a good thing to plan for and to work on. Absolutely. But how does the love of God get perfected in our heart? How does that happen? Verse 16 says, by, by coming into God, by living in love. So we talked about last week some ways to do that, right? Some prayer time, Bible reading, things that will keep you in, in mind of God, in view of God, with him in your perspective. So that's, that's good. But ultimately, you have to also receive the love of God for yourself. And you must move, you must change addresses. And this is what he says. He says, the love of God has been perfected in our hearts that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Uh, I always talk to Ro about, about uh, the sermon before I preach it, um, or as Micah says, as I'm trying to find my sermon. Um, it's my 10-year-old. He's like, have you found your sermon yet? I'm like, I've been searching YouTube. What, what, what could I copy? No, just kidding. Uh, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, I said, well, I don't know, you know. And so I was talking to Ro about it, and I, and I said, this is interesting because the kind of confidence, one, confidence is something that is really lacking right now. Like in America in general, uh, during the pandemic, I've noticed a lot of people's confidence has been shaken. And um, just as a pastor, a lot of people that I'm pastoring, their confidence has been shaken. I've talked people off the ledge of suicide, for instance. I've talked people off the ledge of, of all kind, just doing crazy stuff because their confidence is shaken and they don't know what is what, right? Who's on first, right? They don't know they, what they thought they knew. They, they realized they didn't really know. And some things have been flipped upside down. And so and this is reflected actually in, in Christian, like Christian ease, okay? So like if you turn on down to San Antonio this past week and, and go, driving down, we listened to my music, which was King of Kings and Lord of Lords, glory. I was introducing the kids to some Petra and it was, it was good, it was a good time. Um, coming back though, we listened to Rose music, which was K-Love. She likes Christian radio. 
And I'm not like, I, I, I knock Christian radio sometimes, but I'm not really against it. Actually, I mean, it's really not bad. It's better than like almost every other kind of radio you could be listening to. So if you have to listen to some kind of trash, like at least make sure it's Caleb. It's not, it's not so awful. Mia knows what I'm talking about. It's not, it's not so bad. It's not, you know, like just listen to some, listen to some Caleb. It's some uplifting. It's encouraging, as Ezra would say. It's in positive and encouraging. And I said, yeah, 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 I, I heard that. But seriously, we went through like three songs, and they were all about how God's going to get you through this week. God's powerful. He's, you can rely on him. You can trust him. He's faithful to his promises. And we sang about it today, right? Um, I'll, I'll see you move. I've seen you move the mountains. It's that kind of, it's almost like bolstering our confidence because there's a great lack of confidence right now. People are feeling a great lack of confidence. They're like, well, I don't know where God is. I can't see him. And so Christian uh, preachers and Christian book writers and Christian songwriters are trying to reinforce, and it's good, the confidence that you can have in God. And it's, it's interesting, though, because one thing that I haven't noticed is a lot of confidence about this right here that John's talking about, the day of judgment. And I, and I, and I don't think it's because we uh, are very confident about the day of judgment. I was telling Ro, I said, I think the problem that I have in preaching this passage is that technically, you know, because a lot of people would preach this passage that perfect love casts out all fear. And so here's seven kinds of fear that perfect love is going to get out of your life. And it's, you know, fear of the dark and fear of whatever. And it's just different fears. It's fear of failure and it's fear. And it's just, you can go off, you can go off on what kind of fear the perfect love is going to cast out. But contextually, he's not talking about those fears. He's not talking about a fear that the economy is going to crash or inflation is going to go up. He's not talking about uh, a confidence that you're, that you're going to keep your job or you're going to get that job or you're going to get that promotion or you're going to get that house or you're going to get that. He's not talking about that kind of confidence. He's talking about confidence in the day of judgment. And the, the burn in preaching this is that I don't know that many people are even really that aware of the day of judgment, let alone conscious of a lack of confidence in that particular day. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about the day of judgment. You know, it's almost like I was telling Ro, it's like, as I read this, I kind of want to be like, John, like, aren't you a little extreme? Aren't you kind of blowing this thing out of proportion? I mean, like, what about this week? How are you going to help me with my finances, John? Like, my marriage is struggling. Could you give me some confidence that my wife is not crazy? Could you just give me some confidence that my husband is not crazy? Could you give me some confidence that my kids are not insane? Could you just give me some, give me some confidence that everything's going to work out, that even though the guy I voted for didn't get elected, that, you know, hey, somehow, something like that. Could you, like, and, and yet John just rushes right to the day of judgment. He goes right to this day of judgment. And most Christians, I think, don't even believe that we're going to stand in judgment. Because it's like, well, I got Jesus, so I'm good, right? <laughs> but no, the Bible says that all of us, even those who have our faith in Jesus, will stand in judgment and give an account for every single word that we say. And not just the ones that you say with, when you have a microphone, but I'll give account for those as well. Uh, but every single word that we say, this is why like in the Loki, in the Loki series and Loki went to the TAA, you know, they had him sign a paper with every single word he had ever said. He's like, what? And a new thing prints out and he has to sign it. He's like, this is ridiculous. A new thing prints out and he has to sign it. Like I said, Marvel likes to make fun of the Bible because that's literally what scripture says is going to happen. We're going to stand before God in every word. He's going to ask us about every single word. Not only that, but every single action, everything that we've done. Well, I thought, uh, I thought once I got saved, like none of that mattered. No, it does matter. It all still is very real. And, and, and we're not really, we're not, we don't have, we don't lack confidence in the day of judgment because honestly we lack awareness of the day of judgment. And yet this is something that the Bible talks about a lot. This is something that uh, the word hell, for instance, is mentioned 11 times in the New Testament. 10 of those times by Jesus the guy who said, love your neighbor, right? That guy, the loving guy, the guy who laid out for you. He, he also said, he was pretty descriptive, probably more so than a lot of preachers are. He said, look, it's so important that you don't go to hell, that if, if your eye causes you to sin, you, might, you should take a knife and cut your eyeball out because it's better to go to heaven with one eye than to go to hell with two eyes. Jesus, a lot of his teaching won't make sense until you understand how he views the end. 
And in fact, I would, I would suggest to you that, that uh, all of life will be affected by how you view the end. And one of the reasons, I think, why we, we, we need K-Love-type music and we need K-Love-type sermons to keep reminding us that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly right here and right now is because of how we view the end. Primarily because we don't have confidence in the end, so we constantly lack confidence in the now, if that makes sense. And so what John is doing for us even though it seems extreme and it seems like psh, in your face. Let's talk about the day of judgment. Uh, you know, I haven't even had my coffee yet, Harry. I came in church late. They shut it down. I don't know. But like, no, like it's, it's, it's really going to help you. It's actually going to help you if you can settle deathbed questions. If you can settle deathbed issues, then you will find that all the other issues line up much easier. You won't need to be encouraged so much that God's going to get you through the week if you can know what is going to happen at the end. You settle deathbed issues. You answer deathbed questions. You settle end-of-life kind of questions. By the way, if you're a Christian and you are too afraid to talk about the end of life, something's wrong. Something's wrong. You don't have the kind of Jesus that, that John had. You don't have that kind of relationship with him. You don't have confidence in the end. And it shouldn't take cancer diagnosis to get you thinking about the end. The end is around the corner for all of us. Whether cancer or not, I don't know how the end is going to happen for you or for me. I'm not sure when I'm going to enter into the day of judgment. But at some point, this is the truth, at some point, all of us, 100% of everybody in this room and on this planet, 100% of everybody you know is rushing toward the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us. You say, well, that makes me feel nervous. Good. Well, okay, good. At least, like, this is what I told Micah the other day. I was, I was, I was, I was, we were having a good little talk, and I said, man, that's a, that's a hard heart. Da, 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 da. And he said, he's like, well, that, that makes me feel, feel worried. You should be worried. Like, that's what I told him. This is a private, this is a good, this is how I pastor my kids. You should, if I were you, I would be worried. Because this is not a little thing, right? Like, like my car is a little thing. If that thing breaks down, if it dies, it's just a car. Who cares? My job is a little thing. This church is a little thing. If this church stops meeting, there's other churches. You can go to those. <laughs> this building is a little thing. This, this, the, my, my bank account is a little thing. Because it's not going to last very long. Even this church isn't going to last. There's going to be a time in which this church goes away. Nobody remembers the name City Chapel. There's going to be a time when you go away. Nobody remembers you. And history books will be re-altered and redefined the way that new generations would like to remember stuff. And it'll all be shifted because it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, my car doesn't matter. Your bank account, my bank account, your, your marriage is going to end. All of this stuff is all going to end. It's all ending except... Where you stand with God on the day of judgment. This is permanent. This is long term. And I mean like millions of years from now. This is important. And so at 10 years old, I'm like, dude, you should be worried. If, if it worries you, good. Let it worry you, but then do something about it. Let that worry grow into to a need to say, you know what? I need confidence in the day of judgment. I, it's not okay that I just go through life because our thinking is, oh, that's so far off. And it's, I mean, we got time to figure that out, don't we? Maybe. <laughs> but actually, who you are right now is forming, it's solidifying, it's hardening who you will be the rest of your life. Decisions you're making right now, beliefs you are adopting right now. So, so, so it's important that we stand before Scripture and that we have confidence in the day of judgment. And the way we get confidence is by the love of God being perfected inside of us. And here's the answer. He says, because as he is, so are we in the world. Now, most people, uh, most scholars will say, because as Jesus is, so are we in the world. But that's not what it says. It says he, that he is referring to verse 16, which is God. God is not just Jesus. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. And so I believe he's not just talking about that we live morally exactly the way Jesus lived, even though we should. He's talking about that we live communally the way that God lives. That the Father loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Father loves the Spirit. That just as he is doing that, that's what we're doing. 
that Harry is loving his wife and his wife is loving Harry and we are loving our kids and our kids are loving us. By loving, I mean seeking our highest good. That's why I have conversations with my son. It's not because it makes me feel good. It's not because it makes our relationship better. It's because it's his highest good that he know where he stands with God. And then he make a decision to go toward God. And I can't make the decision for him, and I'm not going to make the decision for him, but I can encourage him to make conscious moves toward God because that's his highest, that's in his highest good. This is his best interest. School is not in his best interest. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping that until they're 18. I'm not going to tell them right now. <laughs> but obedience to their parents is. And his, his parents want him to go to school because they want him to be educated because they want him to get a job, be able to support his family, okay? So it's all good. Education's fine, but it's not the highest thing. So the highest thing is where you stand before God. And then after that, your relationship status. And then after that, your finances. Then after that, your education. And after that, all these other things that the Gentiles seek, they will be added to you when you prioritize the kingdom of God. So God is interested in you being blessed in these many ways and thriving in these many ways. But the way that you get to that is by prioritizing your relationship with him. And so, so I prioritize that to my kids. I prioritize that to my wife. Husbands, if, if God stopped you right now and asked, how is your wife doing spiritually? You should be able to answer that question. If you can't answer that question, you're not prioritizing her highest good. How are you helping her grow spiritually if you don't even know where she is? Wives, you should also know your, your husband's greatest need right now. If you don't know his greatest need, how are you meeting it? <laughs> how are you helping him become who he's supposed to be if you don't even know who he's supposed to be? So it's important that we prioritize, just like the father prioritizes the son, the son prioritizes the spirit, the spirit prioritizes the father, that we prioritize each other. That as a pastor, I don't just, it's like, okay, well, they're, they're attending, they're tithing, so that's good. No, I need to prioritize more than that. I need to make sure that you're walking with Jesus. I need to check in with you. I need to sit with you. I need to talk with you. I need to, I, I need to read your Facebook post, right? I need, I, I, I need to help you get closer to Jesus. Not, it's not about you liking me. And in fact, I'll sacrifice that if I can help you get closer to Jesus. It's not about you attending this church. I'll sacrifice that if it'll get, help you get closer to Jesus. Because there's other churches, Right? And so, so the main goal is that you get closer to Jesus. I prioritize you, and then you prioritize me. And I serve you, and I show up at your house to help you move and pack stuff in your way. And then you serve me, and you show up, and you help me do things. And we serve each other. Like a mutual service, mutual love, mutual submission. Nobody's running the show. Nobody's in charge telling everybody else what to do. We're serving each other. And this is the family of God. And this, hopefully, is your family. You say, that doesn't sound like my family. Well, it can start. It starts with one person who says, I will be selfless. I will not stand up for myself. I will not demand that I be recognized and heard and honored and respected. I will not be, like, I will start the selfless love chain. And as one person starts, one person can change a whole family. And one family can change a community. And entire communities can be transformed by the love of God. Because love is more powerful than the deepest, darkest evil. It is more powerful. It communicates it communicates value. It communicates worth. It says, you are worth my laying down of my life. You are worth laying down of my priorities in real and practical ways. And so when we step into the love of God, the love of God is perfected in us. And then we have confidence. You know how you get confidence in the day of judgment? By living in love. You're lack, if you're lacking confidence in the day of judgment, it's because you're not living in love. Because of how you live affects how confident you are in the day of judgment. Literally. And it's not what you think necessarily or what you believe or what song you listen to. The confidence that God's talking about is the kind of confidence that comes from living, living in love. And so as we do that, we have confidence. And then he says there is no fear in love, but perfect love or love that has been perfected. Love that is flowing to me and through me. That love starts casting out all fear. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And we love him because he first loved us. Quick Bible story as we, as we conclude today. Um, found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, is the story of a guy whose name is really hard to pronounce. Uh, you might have heard of him before. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Multiple syllables going on. It's Hebrew. Okay. It's weird. Uh, Mephibosheth. 
was the son of Jonathan, and Jonathan was the son of Saul, and Saul was king of Israel. Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul is all often also a type and shadow of Adam. And just as Adam was the first man that God created, Saul is the first king that God appointed over his people. And just like Adam fell uh, into sin and rejected God's rule, even so, that's what Saul did. Saul fell into sin and rejected God's rule, wanted to rule for himself. And because of that, uh, the, the entire country was thrown into turmoil. They were under attack. They were in trouble. And so God was raising up. God sent a new son, a different kind of one. And so David is a type and shadow of Jesus. He's, he's kind of a prototype of a different type of king who would rise up, not from within the palace, but from within the sheepfold, from the hills. And so God anoints David. He's about t- uh, 10 or 12 years old when God anoints him uh, to be king. And then he's about 17 years old when he defeats Goliath. And from that point on, uh, the cards are kind of uh, stacked in his favor. You see the favor of God on David. David's going to be king, and Saul can't stand it. Saul becomes jealous of David. And so most of the next 13 years or so is a story of Saul trying to kill David. The guy who's mentoring you is trying to kill you physically, literally. And he's hunting David. And David is, is, is traveling from place to place, hiding out in cave after cave. And so many of the Psalms that we read are written by David while he's on the run. And so, so that's why he's calling out about, you know, if you read the Psalms, there's all this stuff about David like being hunted and being killed. Like that's what he's talking about, okay? He's, he's literally being hunted by a madman who happens to be king in charge of an entire army who's trying to find him. And for 13 years, roughly, he's on the run. And then something happens when David's 30. Saul and Jonathan, his son, who's heir to the throne, Saul and Jonathan are in battle and they both are killed in the same battle. And so in one night, basically, the, the, the whole tables are turned, and David marches on Jerusalem. David says, this is my opportunity now to step in and take the throne. David marches on Jerusalem. Well, we read in 2 Samuel earlier, I think it's chapter 4, that on that night when, when David is moving into Jerusalem to take over the capital city, to take over uh, the, the, the palace, that Mephibosheth is the only last living son or relative of Saul. And typically, it was, it was common that when a new king would take over, that king would execute the family of the old king. And so understandably, Mephibosheth's caretakers are concerned. And so they are trying to flee in the middle of the night, trying to get out of there before David's men get there, the soldiers get there, and slit their throats. And so they're climbing. Now, this is a, it's a rocky region. They're climbing out of the... Out, out of the palace, down mountain, through ravines. And at some point, um, Mephibosheth is dropped. He's five years old. We don't know how far he fell, but you can imagine there's, there's some pretty steep places that there, this lady who's his caretaker, his nurse, is trying to carry him, trying to get him out, the, out of there. She drops him. He falls and breaks or maims or somehow disables both of his legs. And this is, this is Mephibosheth. And, and now we are about, it's about 13 to 15 years later in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And this is what it says. Now David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now that word kindness, it's, 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 it's usually translated um, loving kindness or God's kindness because it literally means covenantal kindness. It means the kind of kindness that isn't like, oh, I like you, so I'm going to be kind to you. It's the kind of kindness that's connected to a covenant that was made, that David had made a covenant with Jonathan. And this goes back to the early days of of David and Saul and Jonathan, where Saul was becoming more and more bitter, more and more uh, murderous toward David. And yet Jonathan, who was the heir to the throne, realized that David was actually called to be the next king. So Jonathan made a deal or made a covenant with David and said, I'm going to protect you. And I'm going to help you. And I'm going to help you become king because you're the one that God's called to be king, not me. And so Jonathan is almost like, he's, he's almost like a type and a shadow of, 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 of Israel. That, 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 that God made a covenant with Israel. And that through Israel, 
the new king would rise up. Jesus would come into the world. And so Jonathan made this covenant, and he did. He helped David escape at one point. There were several times that he, he helped, he, he helped uh, uh, talk his father out of stuff and do stuff in order to protect David. And meanwhile, Jonathan and Saul both die. And David has been reigning for a little while now. He's got the kingdom of order. He's taking care of his enemies, the Philistines. And he's sitting in his palace. And he says, you know what? I made a covenant with Jonathan that I would always seek his good, that I would always be kind to him. And he's dead now. But does he have any kids? Where are his kids? Where are they living? How are they living? And he, and, he, and he starts asking around the palace. He says, is anyone of the house of uh, Saul still alive that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul. Now, he's not from the family. He's just a servant. And so there was a servant of the house of Saul. His name was Ziba. So when they had called Ziba to David, it started raining. The king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, I'm at your service. Then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness of God? So in other words, nobody knew where any relatives of Saul were living. And so they found this guy who used to work for Saul. And they said, hey, do you know anybody? I don't want to kill them <laughs> like you would think. I, would. I want to show kindness to them. And so Ziba said, Jonathan, uh, he said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, but he is lame in his feet. What's he saying? He's saying, look, there is technically one living relative, but he's not the kind of guy that you want around the palace. He's not the kind of guy when you have other kings from other palaces come visit you, like, he's, he's not going to help our publicity, our marketing, our PR. This isn't going to be good to have lame guys just hanging around, sliding around on our palace as if, you know, we're just a country full of lame people. Like, he's not the kind, because, because you have to think about the face of the organization. You have to think about, what are we projecting to the rest of the world? This isn't strength. It looks like we're, we could, you, could, you could take us out really easily. We want strong men, young men, buff guys. Like, like, we want some bouncers out here to let everybody know that we're tough. We mean business. And he's like, I don't know that we want lame people crawling around the palace. And David just ignores that idea. Instead, he says, the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, well, he is in the house of um, Machir, the son of Emil, in Lodabar. Now, Lodabar, there was a low bar to live in Lodabar. Uh, <laughs> there was a low bar because it means without pasture. It was the sketchy part of the country. It, it, was the, it, was, it was the poor region. It was the place you would go if you didn't want people to know where you were. Is the place you'd go if you didn't want the king's soldiers to know where you were because nobody was going around there. It was no pasture. It was poverty stricken. And he says, yeah, he's living, he's living in Lodabar. So we have Mephibosheth who is lame in his feet, incapable of walking. What a, what a transition, right? He goes from living in the finest of luxuries as a five-year-old, being able to run around and play and do whatever he wants, to suddenly crippled to where he cannot walk, and not only that, loses everything he had, living in poverty, living in the desert, place of no pasture. <laughs> well, that sounds a lot like humanity. We went from the garden, and we crashed straight into the dumpster. And we're broken. We can't even lift ourselves up. We don't have within us the necessary, the necessary strength to move forward. And so... David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Emil, which, by the way, he's also living at the graces of Machir because he can't provide for himself. So he's living with somebody. Somebody else has to take care of him. Somebody else has to provide for him. And this is what it is to live outside of the family of God. This is what it is to live outside of the palace of the kingdom of God. You become dependent on so-and-so's favor and so-and-so's acceptance and so-and-so's words of encouragement and such-and-such -such, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, alcohol and such-and-such -such that you can put into your vein. And you become dependent on something to help you get through because you can't get through on your own. And this is what he is. He's dependent on Machir, uh, the son of Emil. And, and David said, I want you to bring him out of that dependence. I want you to bring him out of that place of destitution. I want, to, I want you to bring him out of the wilderness and bring him here 
so that I can bless him. This is interesting. Mephibosheth is living under fear. 1 John 4 says that fear, that perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with torment. I think is what it says in the New King James. Has to do with torment. Well, in the original language, has to do means to carry. And torment means judgment or the thing that you deserve, the right judgment that you deserve. And so actually, it really means that fear carries judgment with it. So not only could Mephibosheth physically not walk, but emotionally he was carrying on his shoulders the weight of the fact that he was a wanted man, the weight of the fact that at any given moment soldiers could find him, turn him in, and he would lose his head, the weight at any given moment. He had a son in this time named Micah, by the way, that at any given moment, if anybody found out his real name and his real family, that if anybody found out who he really was, his entire family would be in, in jeopardy. This is what it is to live outside of the palace of God. If anybody really finds out who I really am, I have to keep up this face. I have to keep up this, 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 this Instagram profile because if anybody really sees me, then who I am and what I love and everybody that I love will leave me, they'll go away, and life will end as I know it. So I have to keep this up. They can't really find out who I am. And so not only is he physically limited, but he's emotionally stunted and he's mentally trapped. He cannot move out of the house of Makir because if he moves out of his place of, of dependence, then who is he? And if people find out who he is, then he's in trouble. And so he's living with fear. Fear is carrying judgment. He believes the king is out to kill him. And isn't it funny, the whole time where he's living in the desert, he's living dependent on somebody else, living under the belief that the king is out to kill him, at the same time, the king is in the palace trying to bless him. This is a picture of humanity and God. God is in heaven saying, who can I show kindness to? Who can I love? Who can I welcome into my house? Who can I bless? And we're going, man, if, if God ever really sees me, if he ever really figures out who I really am, he's going to crush me. He's going to destroy me. And so we keep busy with distractions. We keep busy dependent on other people and other substances and other things in order to help us be who we're pretending to be. And yet God all the while is in heaven saying, man, I, I, where, where is Harry that I can show kindness to him? It's such a, such a shock, such, a, such a, uh, a turn of events in Mephibosheth's mind. Because then one day he gets a knock on the door and it's, it's an old friend of his, an old guy, the only guy in the entire country that knows where he lives. And he's ratted on him. <laughs> He snitched. He, he turned. Under, under, under torture, he, he confessed to the king. Where Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, where Mephibosheth was. And Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth scared. Let's just call him meh. Meh. That pretty much describes his life. Meh, meh, is scared. <laughs> and, 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 and Zabir says, no, 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 it's, it's good, actually. The king, the king wants to bless you. He, he remembers his covenant that he's made, and he wants to fulfill. He wants to complete. He wants to perfect love. He said something a while ago, and he wants to bring it to completion. He told Jonathan that he was going to be faithful to him and to make sure that his whole family was taken care of. And he wants to do it. Now he wants to perfect love. Eh, I don't know. I have fear of judgment. And so meh goes with Zabir. And they make their way to the temple or to the to, to the palace, they make their way to the palace, and, and uh, in verse, let's see, verse 5, then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Mekir, the son of Emil, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and laid himself straight out before him. In other words, he was really scared. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, because perfect love casts out fear. Because when you come into the palace of the God who has good intentions for you, good plans for you, the first thing he often says, in fact, frequently throughout scripture, when the angel of the Lord would approach people, he would always start with, do not fear. 
<laughs> he, talked to, he talked to Joshua. He had to tell him multiple times, do not fear. This is a warrior. This is a guy who doesn't usually fear. And yet, and yet for some reason, when we think about the day of judgment or when we think about the way that God thinks about us, this brings up our ultimate fears. This brings out our ultimate anxieties. And, and, and Mephibosheth is no different. And, and David says, look, I, I know you're, what you're expecting, but do not fear. And this is why he fell on his faith and he said, do not fear for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. There's three things he's going to do for him. I'm going to show you kindness. That is, I'm not going to judge you the way you thought I was going to. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm going to show you kindness. Then he says, I'm going to restore to you everything that was supposed to be yours, that was your birthright. That you were born and it was supposed to be yours and it was taken away by others. I'm going to restore. I'm going to give it back to you. And then he says, I'm going to uh, place you in, 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 in such a place that you will eat bread at my table. And so then uh, Mephibosheth bows himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Which is our right response to the immense mercy of God. Like, who am I that you have taken thought of me? I'm in poverty I'm a fugitive. I'm an enemy of God, an enemy of the state. I, I, who am I that you, have, that you have considered me? And then down in verse 11, it says this. David said, as for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat bread at my table like one of the king's sons. <laughs> and so a man who was destined for the throne, who fell... <laughs> And broke himself and was incapable of getting back to where he was born to be. Was brought back into that position through the love of David. And this is, of course, usually where people end the story because it's a beautiful ending to the story. Because this is the invitation for salvation. This is the part where if you are far from God, you need to know that God's not trying to judge you. He's not out to crush you. He's trying to show kindness to you. And so coming into his presence is coming back to kindness. Coming into his presence, living in love, even though he'll ask you to lay down things and sacrifice things, the things he's asking you to lay down, it's stuff from Lodabar and it's stuff from Makir's house that you don't need anymore. <laughs> he's asking you, yeah, to not go to Lodabar because it sucks there. <laughs> in a Christian way. I don't know if you can say that in church, but in a, like, in a biblical way, it's awful. Why? What? 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 Those people, that, that, that guy doesn't even love you. Makir is using you to make himself feel better. He's, support, he's not getting you on your feet. He's just constantly feeding you stuff to keep you on the, on the chain. Why don't you come here where you will actually sit as one of the king's sons? You'll walk with authority even though you're not walking. <laughs> you'll, 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 you'll live with, with the inheritance that was what was intended for you. And so this is what happens when we come into God's presence. Suddenly we begin changing our lives because our old lives don't make sense anymore. It makes no sense to go back there. It makes no sense to live there. It makes no sense to, to fellowship with, with that idea and with that way of thinking. It makes no sense. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, what's the, what's the popular phrase? Uh, it doesn't speak to me. That spoke to me. Well, um, they, there's certain stuff that just doesn't speak to me because I don't think like that. Because I don't like that. I don't value that. I don't want that. That's not where I'm going. That's not what I'm after in life. It doesn't resonate with me. Because it's, it's weird. It's not, that's not where I am. I, I haven't been in Lodabar for a while. I haven't been in a place of no pasture for a while. I don't want to go back there. I don't like that. It didn't feel good. Like I was telling, asking Micah, do you think God wants you to feel this way? No, I don't like feeling this way. Exactly. I want you to live not feeling this way. You're feeling this way because you've gone back. It's not good. So God wants to bless you. He wants to take you into a place of, of, of restoration of everything that, that belongs to you by your birthright, of, 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 of kindness being poured out to you with regard to the, your past, so that when you stand before him in judgment, on judgment day, you have confidence before him. And this is what Mephibosheth gets. He gets confidence. 
And he gets so much confidence, by the way, in the love of David for him and in his place at David's table that multiple chapters later, I think it's chapter 19, uh, well, it's actually chapter 16, 17, and 18, things start happening in the country. David, one of David's actual sons, Absalom, turns on him and tries to take over uh, the throne and gathers a bunch of people and says, yeah, David's a loser. We need Absalom to be king. And they charge the palace. And David then is running. And David's on the run. And he's jumping over some of the same mountains that Mephibosheth probably fell down years before. And David has to flee. And David and a small group of people leave the country. They go to a neighboring country to hide out. Mephibosheth doesn't go with them, though. And Zabir, the guy who used to work for Saul, tells David that the reason why Mephibosheth didn't go with him is because Mephibosheth uh, was actually a traitor. But that's not true. Mephibosheth thought that uh, his servant was going to mount the horse for him and get him on a horse. Instead, his servant took the horse and took off. So Mephibosheth is stuck in Jerusalem, unable to move. And, and David's life is in danger, and David's on the run. And finally, uh, God actually organizes some events that Absalom dies. Uh, and back into the palace. And the first guy to meet him when he gets to Jerusalem is Mephibosheth. Now, how in the world Mephibosheth got there without a horse and without a servant, <laughs> we don't know. I guess he crawled his way for a few miles to meet David, to be the first one to meet him. And David is a little upset because he thinks that Mephibosheth has, you know, been a traitor. And so he's like, why are you meeting me here? And Mephibosheth explains everything about the servant, about all of that. And David's not sure. He's not sure to trust him or not. David says, you know what? Fine. Like, okay, that's, that's a fine story. You and what's-his-face can split, can split the land that I had promised you, all right? So, so, so you still get your inheritance. And Mephibosheth says, let, let him keep all of it. I, don't, I, I wasn't here for the inheritance. As long as I can live in the palace with you, as long as I can be like one of your sons, I'll be happy with that. This is what it means to live in love. Because you can step into love still. Man, God, I'm desperate for your forgiveness. I'm desperate for that restoration. Yeah, just bring it all, bring it all. And you can receive it. And then God will be like, well, so if you're happy with that, you go ahead and have fun. But really living in love brings us to a place where we're not just happy with the blessings of God, the restoration of God, the fullness of God. It brings us to a place where it's actually we, we, we are happy in the relationship that we have with God. And this is what he means, that love becomes perfected in our hearts, that we're not selfishly looking for blessings from him, but we are entering into his presence and we are enjoying his fellowship with him. That at the end of the day, I'm not praying so that I can get a sermon, find a sermon on Sunday. I'm not reading my Bible so that I can locate something to share with you all. I want to know him. And it is out of that knowing him that I get excited to share him with you. But even if I am not allowed to share, even if I lose my voice or something and I can't preach anymore, it's okay. I'll, I'll still connect with him. And I'll still have a great time with him. You guys just won't be in on it anymore. <laughs> you gotta find somebody else. I don't know, figure it out. But, 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 but I'm, not out, I'm not out for my inheritance. I have relationship. That's, that's, that, that's it. That's enough. That's the, that's the be all and end all. I'm in the middle of this love, and this love, honestly, I can find myself, I can see myself here 10,000 years from now. Like, I can see myself here 10 million years from now. It's great. I'm giving to my father. My father's giving to me, and he's working out of me all the stuff that blocks his love. And, and man, when, when, when I finally get to the place where there's nothing blocking whatsoever, there's nothing between, I can only imagine that that love is even greater, and I, and I literally don't need my inheritance. That's why, that's why the 24 elders cast down their crowns before God. Because why do I need this? Like, this is, this is great. It's beautiful. It displays all of my efforts. It's, it's a symbol of all of my sacrifice. But at the end of the day, what have I really sacrificed? Everything I gave up, I gained this relationship with the king of my heart. And I live with him. And now that he's returned, and now that he's back, Mephibosheth, the whole time that David was away, he was, he was, it says he didn't, he didn't clip the nails of his feet and he didn't shave his beard. So I, I, I let a little bit grow and, and I, I, did, I did clip my nails because 
you got to protect the socks. But he was, living, he was living in a place of mourning. And this is what scripture says, that Jesus is coming back for those who desperately are looking for him. He's coming back for those who are longing for his coming. Not trying to put it off so that they can save some more money, have some more great experiences down here. But they're longing. Jesus, if you want to come back right now and just end all this, that'd be awesome. I'm longing for your coming. Because <laughs> I've stepped into this love. So let me just pray with you. And I, and I do offer that offer of salvation to you. What, we, what church, the church calls being saved. But really is just simply stepping into the love of God and beginning to receive that for yourself. To believe is what John says. To believe that God loves you. And to receive it. And if that's you today... I just offer, I offer you the love of God. If you will believe it, if you will move into the palace, if you'll step out of that desert place, if you'll get away from that and come live with him, you will find his kindness, you will find his mercy, you will find restoration, and you will find a place for you at his table as one of his sons. He will wipe away your past. He'll send your sin as far away from you as the east is from the west. He won't remember it against you anymore. All judgment will be canceled against you. He'll deal, he'll, he'll deal with the fear of judgment. This is why even though we are going toward the day of judgment, we don't have fear of judgment. Huh. He'll give you a new name and a new character, and he'll, he'll help you receive the inheritance that you were made for. And the way you do that is you just say, Jesus, I need you. I want to live in love. I want to live in you. Come into my heart. Change me from the inside. Show me how to live in you. Show me how to live in love. But it is a commitment. It absolutely is. And if you're like, eh, I'm not sure I'll be able to make that commitment. Well, okay, God's waiting for you to actually say, yes, I will do what you're calling me to do. I know you don't know if you can fulfill it. I know you don't know if you can keep it up. It's not about you. It's not about that. It's about simply saying yes to God. And then God will give you the grace and God will give you the power to do everything that he's going to ask you to do in the future. He'll never leave you on your own strength. He'll always empower you. And so, Lord, we say yes to you. Not only do we say yes to come into your house, but we say yes to wait for your coming, to let your love flow through us while we wait, to tell others about you until they also trust in you and love you and believe in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Thank you guys.